John 11, we'll look at verses 1 to 27. God's word says this. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So we have a relational connection to Jesus with this family. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go up to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Man, a sermon in and of itself right there, but we're not hitting that this morning. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus, he's fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, not really understanding, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So you see in this culture, there's, there's an understanding of resurrection coming at some point. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone, this is important, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he presents this question, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. In, in 1918, uh, the Boston Red Sox, baseball's most dominant team for the most of the, the early 20th century, won their last World Series title with famed uh, baseball player Babe Ruth. Did you know that Babe Ruth at one point played for the Boston Red Sox? He was a pitcher, and obviously he's well known for his ability to hit the ball out of the ballpark. He was on the, the Red Sox roster for a number of those victories before he was, he was actually just sold to the, the New York Yankees. There wasn't really a trade. He was sold off to them in 1920. And we know in history, for those of you sports buff, uh, over the next 80 plus years, the Yankees would prove to be the most dominant franchise, not only in baseball, but in all of professional sports. I mean, there's, there's no other teams that have won more world championships than the Yankees, which hurts me because I hate the Yankees, if I'm honest. 
And so they, they dominated while their rivals, okay, the Red Sox, wallowed in mediocrity and tragic loss for nearly a century, going on a, a, a historic championship drought and consistently not only just losing, but losing in dramatic fashion. Uh, if you were alive in 1986, maybe you'll recall uh, the Red Sox first baseman, Bill Buckner, who allowed a routine ground ball to roll right through the middle of his legs granting the Mets a late-inning win. The Mets, that was game six. The Mets would eventually go on to take the title in game seven, defeating the Sox in, a, in another come-from-behind win, two come-from-behind wins. So just brutal fashion that the Red Sox would lose uh, the World Series. Baseball, we know, is, or if you follow baseball, it's a superstitious sport. And the connection and lore grew going back to the selling off of the baseball great Babe Ruth, affectionately known as, does anybody know what his nickname was? The Bambino, right? The Sox success drought coincided with this event. Sports buffs may recall, though, in 2004, the Red Sox were able to reverse the infamous curse of the Bambino in dramatic fashion. They are the only MLB franchise to overcome a three games to zero deficit in a championship series, storming back in dramatic win after dramatic win over who else but their arch rivals, the New York Yankees, in the American League Championship Series. Ultimately winning the best of seven series, advancing to the World Series where they would go on to sweep the famed St. Louis Cardinals four games to zero, thus reversing the curse of the Bambino. Obviously, I don't, as a pastor, believe in luck or fabled curses on sports franchises, but this dramatic overcoming of mountainous opposition and struggle reminds me of the remarkable reversal of the greatest curse of all time. What is that curse? A true curse connected to the fall of Adam and Eve, the curse of sin and death that has beset humanity since the infamous garden uh, fruit incident, right? Jesus now, in dramatic fashion, grants us a glimpse of what is to come in this story of Lazarus. In history, it's not just a parable. This happened in history, in concrete ways that we can touch, feel, and sense, giving us a glimpse of Jesus's, not only his spiritual power, but his power over the physical. And this brings us to our main idea. Jesus works in concrete ways showcasing his power over the curse of sin and death. See, Christianity is a historical uh, religion, a historical belief. It's rooted in events that actually happened in history, okay? Not a bunch of, of fables. This is one continuous story. Jesus said last week, quoting scripture, he says, scripture is all connected. Later on, after his resurrection, he will teach his disciples that all of scripture has pointed to him. This is one continuous story. It's not just a bunch of little fables connected together that we can learn life lessons from, but is the redemptive story of God and how he saves his people. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus here works in concrete ways, showcasing his power over the curse of sin and death. Jesus says this in verses 25 to 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We've said over the past few weeks, you have everlasting, eternal, abundant life through Christ. Then Jesus presents this question that all of us must wrestle with when he says to Martha, what? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Why do we need resurrection in life? Why does Jesus even say this? It is because of the great curse, right? Reverse the curse. That's the name of our sermon this morning. It's because of the great curse of sin and death that fell upon Adam and Eve at the fall. God, this is the, the whole story of God, okay? God created all things good and right. Humanity had an unhindered relationship with God, and God gave these early humans all things for their delight and to eat as they pleased. He gave them plenty through their pre-fall work or labor in the garden, But his one instruction, one statute for them to follow, calling for obedience to his lordship and authority is found in Genesis 2, 17, where it says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This dreaded day of human history, right? The the fall of humanity, the curse of death for sin granted through the words of God and judgment, we find that judgment in Genesis 3, 19, where God's word says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to the dust, you shall return. What is God saying? You're, you're cursed to death because of sin. We understand that, that death actually doesn't set in immediately, right? Adam didn't just drop dead in that scene, did he? Rather, death and decay is oftentimes a slow process. And also, death was much more than just just a physical death. There is a spiritual death that accompanies humanity as well. In the great sin of Adam, all of humanity now are born spiritually dead, rebellious toward their creator, sinners by nature, and thus in need of, as Jesus says here, this is the connection back, we are in need of resurrection in life, aren't we? This is why Jesus came into history and worked in concrete, physical ways to save his people both spiritually and ultimately to save us physically. That's the end game. Did you know that the end game is not floating on clouds playing harps and diapers? It is a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth that you can touch, feel, and see, that you can taste. Jesus, after his resurrection, ate food. Hallelujah, right? Through a relationship with Jesus, he has reversed the curse. Through a relationship with Jesus, connection to him, we learn a few lessons from today's passage. The first thing that we learn is this. He is accessible. We have access to Jesus. He is accessible. We'll look at verse 3 and then verses 20 to 22. So the, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. I want to stop there. What are they getting at? Jesus, would you do something about this, right? They were, it seems like Martha was a little upset when Jesus finally arrived on the scene, but Lazarus is already dead, right? If you would have been here, he would not have died. So the request here from the sisters is what? Would you come and do something, Jesus? Looking a little bit later in the section. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. I don't think Mary was like, 
overly upset at Jesus. It was just custom. Martha's the older sister. She goes out to meet Jesus. Mary's kind of hanging back. It's kind of her MO too. If you think about the story of Mary and Martha in Luke's gospel, right? Martha's complaining to Jesus about Mary because she's not working hard enough. It's kind of Mary's MO to just kind of hang back. She's chilling. She's crying. She's grieving. Let Martha go out there. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. He is accessible. Notice the relationship that this family has with Jesus, right? If, if we pull back out of this now, as we think through, as we've studied and learned from the Gospel of John, nearly every week I've highlighted a specific point. I don't know if you've picked up on this. It's the proximity of the Jews and the Jewish leaders to who? Jesus, right? God in the flesh. They're face to face with God. I've said that almost every week. And, and the, the condemnation against them, those who reject Christ, is they don't realize who it is. They don't recognize him for who he is. They don't acknowledge him for who he is. And there's an expectation, I think, in John's gospel that they would understand who Jesus is because of their vast knowledge of the scriptures and their eager expectation for, that the Messiah would be coming. But they don't. Now here, this is amazing. In this section of scripture, right, Mary and Martha, I would say they're simple, humble people, people who are seeking God in his ways, people who understand how desperate they are. They have what? Access to God. That should be encouraging to us normal folk, right? That we have access to God through Jesus. It's remarkable. It's remarkable when you think about it. That God, in his, his greatness, we call this his transcendence, right? He transcends all things, all time. In this scene, he's treading the ground in the flesh. He's listening with human ears to their request. He's accessible to his friends. These are friends of Jesus. Don't, don't miss this important lesson from Lazarus's family because it's, it's easy to miss in the remarkable, miraculous raising of Lazarus from the dead, right? Which we should marvel at. That's amazing. But don't miss this remarkable application of Scripture in your life. We have a relationship with God through Jesus and through that, we have access to God in prayer. That should be mind-blowing to us. You have that kind of access. The author of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with right trembling and fear, no, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, to help in the time of need. What are they doing? They're coming to Jesus in their time of need. Our brother is ill. Jesus, what are you going to do? I'll illustrate it this way. And then I'm going to quote one of my favorite pastors because I'm, I'm kind of, I've drawn this illustration from one of his quotes. The only person in my household, aside from my wife, that can come through my bedroom door in the middle of the night while I'm sleeping are who? My children, right? They are the only ones that I will tolerate asking me for something while I'm trying to sleep. I'll tell you this. If a stranger comes through the door in the middle of the night, they might be staring down the barrel of something, right? But my kids don't get that kind of treatment. I listen to them. I listen to their request. And oftentimes, maybe grumpily in my human sin, I respond to them by giving into that request. 
Fortunately, Jesus is more loving than I am. But my kids, right, they can, the point is they can come through that door. They can ask me for anything. Pastor Tim Keller says this. He says, the only person who dares wake a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. You're a child of God. You have that kind of access. Take hold of it. Don't miss out on the opportunity. So many of us keep our burdens. We bear them ourselves. Don't miss out on the opportunity to bring your burdens, troubles, your life decisions to our great, all-knowing, all-powerful Father God. We learn from this passage, this second point, that Jesus is purposeful. He is purposeful. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. Nothing that you go through in life is wasted. No great tragedy is wasted. Nothing happens in vain. They are all for their intended purpose and end. This is clearly taught here in verse 4 and then 11 to 16. But when Jesus heard, right? Remember, Jesus hears your prayer and cries. When he heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, what's happened at this same point? Lazarus is dead. But Jesus knows the purpose after saying these things, he said to them, this is kind of a, a, a comical section if you pay attention to the way these things are said. After saying these things, he said to them, this is the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, right? He's not asleep, is he? He's dead. But I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Basically what they're saying is we don't want to go back up to Judea because last time we were up there, they picked up stones and they're trying to kill you. So if he's just sleeping, let him rest up you know, sleep off the COVID cold, and then he'll wake up, he'll be okay. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, like, all right, guys, he's dead, right? Lazarus has died, and for, here's the purpose, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. That's interesting. Why? So that you may believe Right? You may believe in my power that I have. You may see who I am, but let us go to him. And then Thomas, this is, this is funny too, called the twin. So he's thinking, Jesus is saying, let us go to him where he's at. If Lazarus has died, let us go to where he's at in the place of death. So Thomas all puffed up now. He's fired up. He's like, all right, let us also go that we may die with Lazarus. A bit of humor, right? The disciples aren't picking up on Jesus's hints. He's He's here to give a sneak preview of the good news that accompanies his future death and resurrection. Is Lazarus sleeping or dead or what? Right? Jesus equates our physical death with sleep. Thus, it is not permanent. When a Christian dies, it is not permanent. But the disciples don't understand. So he says it clearly, right? Lazarus has died, guys. Let us go to him. And then overly literal Thomas thinks Jesus is saying, let's go die with Lazarus. And in boldness, he declares, let us go that we may die with him. Right? I'm sure at this point, Jesus is just like, you ever been around people like this? You're like, oh, okay. I, I mean, he probably does the sigh, the head shake. Like, all right, guys, let's, let's go. Let's walk. We got to commend Thomas on his, his zeal, right? He is zealous. His commitment to Jesus and the cause 
is zealous. But the greater lesson here is that Jesus has a purpose even for the greatest of tragedies, right? For those of you who have experienced someone that you love dying, there is no hurt that matches that. There is no grief in life that matches losing somebody that you love dearly. But Jesus has a purpose even for the greatest of tragedies. Psalm 30 captures this, verse 5. For his anger is, for, is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry. I said, endure, last say. That's what some of the translations say for the night. But what? But joy comes with the morning because Jesus has a purpose for everything. Romans 8, 28, one of the most memorable scriptures that remind us of purpose in suffering says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? For what? Good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He is purposeful. The purpose of Jesus operates on a number of levels in this passage. The first thing is this. This isn't in your notes. It brings declaration of the truth by Martha. Why? She says this. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that you are the Savior. I believe that you are the Messiah. Maybe that declaration doesn't happen if Lazarus doesn't die. The second thing is that he teaches the disciples that he is weaving together each and every instance of tragedy and triumph into a great tapestry of redemption and victory. God is making all things new. Jesus is ushering in new creation, good and new creation. Number three, finally, he's giving a sneak preview of his greatest purpose, right? The reverse of the curse of sin and death through his perfect life, death, and death-defeating resurrection from the dead. He is purposeful. We learn from Lazarus and his family that Jesus is, number three, he is empathetic. Jesus is empathetic. I want to explain. Empathy is, you may equate that with sympathy, but it's a little bit different. Sympathy is simply being there for someone who hurts, right? You put your arm around them, and you tell them, hey, it's going to be okay. But empathy relates to the person on a deeper level. We feel what they feel. Jesus, hear, hear this. Jesus understands you. Remember, they're, they're face to face with God in the flesh. God has humbled himself, put on humanity. He feels hunger Right? Think about his first temptation. He feels thirst. Jesus feels emotional ups and downs, fatigue and pain. To draw the slogan from the recent TV ad campaign that says what? He gets us, right? Jesus gets us. Because God became one of us. Verse 28 to 37. When she had said this, I want to pause. That's Martha. She's just declared, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. She then goes, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, he's calling for you. He wants to see you, Mary. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. See, in Jewish culture, they would actually hire professional grievers to come out and grieve with the family, to cry with them. Grief was an important aspect of the life of a Jew. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, notice what it says here, right? He empathizes with you. It says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see, right? Here's like the shortest verse in all of Scripture. What does it say? Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying, right? Just wait and see. Jesus is moved by his people. Okay, he, he's not only accessible, but is deeply connected with us. So that when he sees your pain and hurt, he weeps with you. Isn't that amazing? He's not some sadistic schemer who delights in the pain of his children. He uses it for greater purpose, growth, and good. He does not delight in your pain. He delights in the purpose of it, but not in your pain. He empathizes with you. The author of Hebrews says this again. In verse, or chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus gets you, except he did it perfectly. I will say this too. Jesus also is moved emotionally and weeps because of the impact of it all. If we pull ourselves back out of this story, right, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. We need to view this through redemptive history. This isn't the way that creation was intended to be. God's very good creation has been devastated by sin and its effects. Paul says in Romans 8 that even the earth waits in eager expectation of its redemption. Jesus weeps with his friends, and he also weeps at, about the effects of sin and death on his very good creation. He looks on the tragedy of the situation. Even though he knows the end, Jesus knows what he's going to do. He already told his disciples. He's moved by the weeping, the grief the devastation of his good creation. And he weeps in empathy and in grief over the devastation of sin and death, right? Think of something you love being devastated. God loves his creation, his world. It's similar, I, I think, of the time that's documented in Luke's gospel when, he's, when Jesus is moved emotionally over his rejection by his people. As he looks over Jerusalem and he weeps for her, it says this in Luke 19, 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, what? He wept over it. Sin and death grieve our Savior, and this was why he has done something about it. This is the good news. Number four, he's powerful. Jesus is powerful. 
Verse 38 to 44, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been in there dead four days. Can you imagine, right? Everybody's just bracing themselves. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Hear this, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him, right? Let him go. Can you imagine this guy? I mean, they bound these guys up tight. They even like would basically tape their mouth shut. So Lazarus coming out like this. Can you imagine the scene? Jesus is powerful. He's the conqueror of death and sin through his, his own life. We have to remember, what is the story of Lazarus that has happened in history? It's a preview. When you go to the movies, right, they give you a, they call it a sneak preview of the coming movies, don't they? This is a preview of of what Jesus is going to do. Why? Because Lazarus will go on to experience physical death once again, right? He's not roaming the earth today, is he? I can't go out and find Lazarus anywhere. So he he has experienced physical death. Jesus is showing us what he will accomplish to achieve a greater end. In just a short while, Jesus will enter the grave. He will enter the realm of the dead, lifeless in a borrowed tomb. But on the third day, he will emerge victorious over the grave. We say that he is glorified. Forever he is glorified, right? That's what we sing. This is also a preview. We leave we live presently through faith in Jesus in a, in a sort of spiritual resurrection. We are alive spiritually, and yet our physical bodies, what? They're still dying. Anybody relate, right? We were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God breathed life into us through a powerful move of the Spirit and awakened us from our rebellious slumber and reconciled us to himself so that One day, we will experience a physical resurrection and glorification. And we have confidence in this promise because of Jesus' example and preview that he has gone through the realm of the dead and he has defeated it. He is called the first fruits. And the author of Hebrews encourages us to do this because of the knowledge that we have. The preview that we've seen here in Lazarus' raising from the dead, and we've seen ultimately in Jesus going into the grave and raising from the dead, the author of Hebrews says, be confident. Keep going. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23, therefore, brothers, I'll say this, and sisters, this applies to you, all of us, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. Why? Because he's alive. That he opened us, opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance, that's a beautiful word, of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us do this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for this. For he who promised is faithful and he has proven this because he has resurrected from the dead. And through Jesus... We can sing this great victory song. We studied this on Wednesday night in our Wednesday night discipleship class, Psalm 18, 1 and 2, where David sings to God. He says, I love you, Lord. O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Jesus, right, my stronghold. When we think about Lazarus, we remember that Jesus, through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, has reversed the curse of sin and death, and through faith in him, we are alive. We have eternal, abundant life through Christ. Amen?